Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, this morning, we are concluding our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Hominy is not one of those fruit, I don't think. But we are looking at Jesus in the wilderness, where he is confronted by what the great saints of the church called the temptations to the soul, the world, the flesh, the devil. These are the temptations against which we guard our hearts and our minds through the spirit-cultivated virtue of self-control, self-mastery. It's this combination of self-discipline and self-control, self-discipline, which is turning away from those, uh, or turning toward those good things that we don't want to do. Self-control, turning away from those harmful things that we do want to do. And so as we look at that, I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bibles or your worship guide to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, as Susie comes to read for us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit that you would lead us to be in step with your Spirit, that we may follow our Lord into the rhythms and graces and habits of the kingdom. We pray this through the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in 1993, the acclaimed 
uh, essayist and journalist and interviewer Walter Isaacson sat down with the filmmaker Woody Allen to finally kind of get the record straight about the infamous affair that Allen had with Sun-Yi Previn, who was at the time the adopted daughter of his then girlfriend of 13 years, Mia Farrow, and he was also the, or she was also the sister to Woody Allen's adopted children, Dylan and Moses. If you recall, the whole thing kind of lit up uh, late night talk show host, kind of the perfect thing for that forum. Layers upon layers of dysfunction and brokenness. Soon Yi's relationship with her mother was, was strained. It was complicated. Uh, her, her relationship with Alan was kind of like a father figure. And this whole thing got discovered when Pharaoh found nude pictures of her daughter, who was then 21, in the briefcase of her boyfriend, who at the time was 56 years old. And in the interview, you can almost, uh, and you can, you can Google it on, on time.com, um, read it to your heart's content. Isaacson, he's kind of sitting there, and he, he's very gentle, but very persistently kind of asking the question, variations on kind of the same theme, almost like he is begging Alan to show just an ounce of contrition of what he has done. And so he just keeps asking, like, on some level, did you think it was problematic to begin an intimate relationship with someone who was the sister to your children? To which Alan doggedly and consistently says, no, not in the slightest. I mean, at one point, Isaacson gets so exasperated. He's like, look, I've seen your films. You are a guy who can find a moral dilemma in a broken stop sign. Did, did you not see one here? In which Alan says, no, no moral dilemma whatsoever. And the interview ends with the most Woody Allen of lines. He says, look, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. The heart wants what it wants. It's kind of this idea that has entered into the popular vernacular uh, Selena Gomez turned it into a pop song a little while ago, uh, and it kind of carries this sense that, that there is this unbreakable law at work. It is, neither, it is neither safe nor sane nor even possible to place limits on the desires of the heart. The heart wants what it wants. Who am I? Who are you? to try to control it. That only leads to ruin. The heart does what, what it wants, for sure. The heart, it turns out, is a flaming, jumbled mess. It is a mass of contradictions unto itself. The prophet Jeremiah put it like this, the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Because our hearts are made of flesh. Luke's gospel, Jesus is sent by the Spirit out into the wilderness, water still clinging to his tunic from his baptism, and this moment of great intimacy where he is with the Father, and the Father pronounces, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Kind of like this, this highlight moment of his, of his early life, right before he begins his ministry. And, and Luke kind of puts this in there as a way of letting us know that his identity as the Beloved 
it goes before anything that Jesus accomplishes in his ministry. His whole life, his whole ministry, his whole calling is steeped in grace. Grace beats him to the spot, wherever it is that he goes. And so in this place of of joy, of love, of favor with the Father, full of the Spirit, he is then sent into the wilderness where he is confronted by these three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, the devil. The world, cast yourself off the pinnacle. Order your life according to your desire to win approval from those around you rather than resting in the Father's approval. The flesh, turn these stones into bread. Order your life by the needs and the desires and the cravings of your body other than the will of the Father. The devil, fall down and worship me. Order your life according to your desire for power and not according to the reign and rule of the kingdom. Paul writes in Ephesians that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against these powers and these principalities at work in us. It is not against, you know, CNN and Fox News, right or left, uh, China, Russia, fill in the blank. All those things are symptomatic of a deeper root cause. The fight that we face is against the world, the flesh, the devil, the three of which form a kind of trinity of corruption that fights against our souls and against our culture. A few weeks ago, as we finished up Ephesians, we talked about how this plays out through the power of lies and deception. And I I found a quote, rather than summarize all of that, that I found a quote that basically sums up what it took me like 30 minutes to say. And it's from a guy that uh, I like named John Mark Comer. And he says that the strategy of evil is to inject deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Deceptive ideas. If you worship me, the kingdoms of the world will be yours. That play to disordered desires. Tell this stone to become bread that are normalized in a sinful society. Come into Jerusalem, stand at the highest point, and cast yourself out. If you are the Son of God, then prove it. So the the very first thing I want us to see as we think about self-control is that the deceptive ideas that we encounter are filtered through the narrative script of our culture. They're not random. Jesus has very specific temptations that come to him. He is in the desert. He has been there for 40 days. He is hungry. He has not eaten. He has just received this commission from the Father to announce that the kingdom of heaven is coming into the world through him. And the temptations he faces, so if you are hungry, then make bread. If you have news to proclaim, well then, make yourself a spectacle. Here is a way to the public. You're a king. Well, I will give you a kingdom. All kinds of shortcuts that cut at the heart of the desire and the deepest longings that he has within him. It is the same Thing with us, the temptations that we face are specific. And some of them we know by heart. Some of them come at us subtly. Like that 
sense we have of wanting to sit down and read a good book, something that we know will be nourishing to our souls, but instead we find ourselves gravitating toward our phones to lose 20 minutes flipping through Instagram or whatever. Some of them are deeper than that. They get embedded in lies where we we tell ourselves, yes, I am for God's heart for justice and equity in the world, but yet it is easier for me to come across this narrative that tells me all the reasons why I should keep living in the midst of the status quo. It's like a brilliant marketer getting you to feel an itch so you'll scratch at it, or an algorithm designed to target with precision that place where you are most vulnerable. And that place of your greatest vulnerability is what the writers of the New Testament call the flesh. The word in Greek is sarx, and it's one of those words that has just a a wide kind of semantic range in the Bible, kind of like when you think of the word rock, right? You can be describing that, that hard thing that you find in the ground. You can be describing that motion that you make back and forth. You can be describing a Led Zeppelin song, whatever it is. It's one of those words that has at least three meanings. It can kind of simply mean body. Like you would say, a, a head of cattle is kind of like a part that stands in for the whole. John 1, the word became flesh. It became embodied in the person of Jesus. Or, or Acts 2, God's spirit is poured out on all flesh as in all people. It can also mean ethnicity. As in when Paul tells the Philippians that he has no confidence in the flesh. He has no confidence in his ethnic background. That that is going to be the thing and all the things that are loaded into that. That that's going to be what saves him and brings him into the heart of the kingdom. But most often, whenever you come across this word in the New Testament, this word flesh, it's describing that part of human nature inside all of us that does not see life as a gift of the Creator to be used in self-giving love, but instead sees it as something to be exploited for our own gain and our own gratification. So in another way, it's that part of your heart that is bent away from the kingdom and God's definition of what is good and true and beautiful and bent toward that basic animalistic drive to do whatever the hell I want. It's what Henry David Thoreau described in one of his walks around Walden Park when he said, We are conscious of an animal inside of us which awakens in proportion as our higher nature slumbers. It is reptile and sensual and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled. And we know what this is like. We run across this wherever you are on the human spectrum, religious, secular, whatever. We have this sense of this hierarchy of desires in our mind and in our body, and we employ various tactics to self-edit and, and have self-control to, to edit these desires to pursue the good because some of those desires are, are higher and they will lead to what Jesus describes as abundance of life, life in the full, but also some of those desires are harmful. They're of a a lower register, and they do not lead to life, but instead lead to all kinds of pain and suffering and brokenness. We have seen this in our own lives when we have pulled our hearts toward those desires that we know are not good for us. Desire to lash out in anger, to say, 
harsh words that feel good coming off the tongue at that person who has asked you for like the third time to send you an invoice again when you're like, just learn how to use the freaking search button on your email. Maybe too specific of a scenario? Nobody else has that? Exercising my own demons up here? Okay. Just kidding. That's, 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 that, if that were the depth of my problems, then that would be a wonderful thing. But, or, you know, the, the temptation that we all face to, to, to look at another person as a collection of body parts for our enjoyment instead of as a brother and sister in Christ. Somebody's made in the image of God. Those habits, those desires of the mind and body, this is what the New Testament writers refer to as the flesh. And they are in direct contrast to what Paul describes as the life in the Spirit. In fact, he, he launches into this whole discussion about what the fruit of the Spirit are to kind of provide this positive counterexample of what he calls the acts of the flesh. And he just kind of describes this whole junk drawer list of all kinds of things that deviate from God's desire for flourishing. Uh, Sexual immorality, the whole constellation of things that go on with that. Idolatry, fits of rage, selfish ambition, envy, drunkenness, factions, dissension, and the list kind of goes on. And he says, you know, these things are obvious, right? But, and, and maybe he knows who he is talking to, but as I kind of look over this list, I'm like, this looks just like the morning paper or, you know, a weekend in Silicon Valley or an episode of The Bachelor, so I'm told. And his point is that these things are not love. In fact, they are the antithesis of love. They are the things inside us warring against love. And Paul is saying, look, if you, if you follow these things, if you, if you sow them, you, what you reap is not going to be the rain and the rule and the vision of flourishing in the kingdom of, of heaven and, and Jesus and his vision of what it looks like to, to live that full life. But if you pursue these things in the name of freedom, well, sometimes down the road, maybe even a long way down the road, what you will find is not freedom but pain and heartbreak, and damaged relationships, and destruction, and regrets. Fourth century monk, St. Augustine, who was something of a, a playboy in his early days before this radical conversion to the life of faith and became one of the just towering minds in the life of the church, he wrote, I loved my own ways, not yours, but the liberty that I loved was merely that of a runaway. And his kind of take on the human condition is that our deepest pains, our deepest brokenness arises from this place of what he calls disordered loves, disordered desires. His basic thought was this, is that we are made in the image of God. We are made in love by the God who is love, and we are made to love. And so, we navigate the world. We, our primary orientation in the world is as creatures who are made to love, not necessarily as autonomous thinking things. We are lovers. That is who we are at our core. And, and the core of all of our sin and all of our hang-ups is not that we don't know how to love. It's that we don't know how to desire the right things. 
or that we desire the right things, but we do not desire them in the right order. The flesh, he says, is simply that. It is simply disordered desire and pursuing those things out of a center that is not rooted in the love of the Father. So here's a scenario. Like, it is not a bad thing to love your job. It is a good thing to love your job. But when you find yourself spending 12 hours a day, seven days a week in the office and coming home only to give your family table scraps of your physical and spiritual attention, that is a disordered desire. It's not a bad thing to love your wife and your kids. It's a good thing. But it becomes disordered love when you try to arrange your life and your finances so that they will experience 17 different layers of security And so the the script that you play in your head is that you do not have any extra money to give to the poor or to give to God because you are caring for your family first. If you love anything more than you love God, it will wreak havoc on your soul and on the people around you because those people around you simply cannot bear the weight of that love. It needs to come from giving and receiving love from God. That is your your primary orientation point to reality. That's the only way your heart can be formed appropriately so that you can love rightly. St. Augustine described the flesh as love that is turned in on itself turned in on itself when it is meant to be directed outward toward God, toward the other. And for the last couple of millennia, this idea of of flourishing and cultivating virtue, and it was this idea not just in the church, but in in secular culture as well, in Aristotle, in Plato, it it was all about learning how to say yes to the right desires and no to all the ones that are gonna pull you off track. And spiritual formation, the the process of apprenticing your life to Jesus is learning how to navigate those desires by distinguishing the bad ones from the good ones, the seductive voices of the world, the flesh, the devil, from the voice of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To cultivate self-mastery, this combination of self-discipline and self-control through the right practices and habits and mental models that draw you into the heart of the Father. And these things are handed down to you by by Scripture, by the church, by, by God, by the, the New Testament, by the, the community of faith that you are a part of. All right, I've parked there for a little while. Theology lesson over. But the reason for, for that is because this is a, a concept that is just central to the teaching of Jesus. It's central to the life of the New Testament, but it is something that is absolutely foreign to our post-Christian secular culture that we live in. We live in this vastly fluid society that says that the way to find the most authentic self is to give in to and pursue your deepest desires. We live in what the philosopher Charles Taylor describes uh, over kind of the last 200 years as a shift from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. 
That is, we no longer live by the guidance of an authority. We don't take our cues from uh, our tribe, our parents, our church, our culture, uh, our community, um, but instead by what rings true to our most authentic sense of self. There's a line from a former Supreme, Just, uh, Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy, that kind of captures what it's like to live in this age of authenticity. He wrote that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. In other words, freedom at its heart in this cultural moment is about the ability to build yourself from scratch to listen to what feels most authentically you and to pursue that thing and throw all of your heart and your energy behind it. There are all kinds of reasons for this shift, the correspondence of mass media, the devastation of two world wars, advertising, economics, sexual revolution. We're not going to get into all of that. All that is to say is that this is just the cultural water that we are swimming in. And it, it trains us to see the pursuit of our desires as the thing that's going to lead to our most authentic sense of self. That we are going to find who we are if we give in to the heart wants what it wants. That's true whether it takes the form of, you know, live your truth, you do you, whatever that is, live in a yurt, drink Diet Coke, you know, whatever that thing is. What our ancestors called self-control, our culture calls self-denial. And its primary orientation to reality and its desires, that is the foundational truth of our lives. Cornelius Plantinga describes it like this. He says that in an ego-driven culture, once become needs, maybe even duties. The self replaces the soul, and human life degenerates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel and with how they feel about how they feel. In such a culture and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. We have been taught that to deny yourself is the worst thing you can do, even though it is literally the very first thing that Jesus said to his disciples, that you will find life if you take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It's what Jesus modeled on the cross for us. And so in contrast to all of this, the life of Jesus and the teachers of his way have viewed the desires of the flesh not as an open road that you, you travel down upon to discover the real you at the end of it, but instead as a mixed bag that in partnership with the Spirit, you may be able to order and lead your heart into desiring the kingdom. So the question is that in a culture that is assailed by these enemies of the soul, where the heart wants what it wants, how do we train our hearts in apprenticeship to Jesus? How do we know who the self is? Well, Paul writes this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The call to self-restraint is not the call to silence your most authentic self. Instead, it is an invitation to live in step with the Spirit and in so doing, find who you truly are. Discover that your strongest desires, the ones that are the most immediate pressing in front of you, are not the same thing as your deepest desires. No, that is the place where you are made to long for intimacy with the Father. The deepest longing of the heart that we have, all of us, is to live as beings created in love by love for love. We are made to love. We are made to love the right things in the right way. This ultimately is what we see with Jesus in the wilderness. He is led by the Spirit in step with the Spirit. In solitude, he lets go of the scaffolding, all the voices around him telling him who to be, what kind of Messiah to, to live into, how to, how to get this message, this, this, this gift that he has been given out into the world. And in fasting, he puts away these desires of the flesh as a way to focus on the Father. And in each response, we see a life that has been shaped not by the, the thoughts that were out there in the culture, but by the scriptures themselves, they become the map by which to navigate his desires. It is the same thing with us, the temptations that we face, these disordered uh, desires that we have that are fed by deceptive ideas made seductive by the voices in our culture at heart, whether they are just, you know, lust or, or gossip or the tendency to belittle and just sit and watch Netflix all day long or whatever it is, when we are alone with that self before God, those are not our deepest desires. They may be our strongest desires in the moment, but they are not what the heart is made for. Beneath that surface-level chaos, our deepest desire is to know and be known by God. And not because we're super spiritual, but because the Spirit of God is alive and at work within us. It does not feel that way in the moment. In the furnace of the moment, our deepest desires get hijacked and they get sabotaged by our stronger desires. So I cannot have you walk away thinking that self-control is the same thing as willpower. A therapist once said that willpower is great when it works. But as any addict will tell you, it's powerless to break the habits and streams of thought that have just gotten situated in your body. A friend of mine is a fighter pilot, and he was talking with some friends about, you know, the heat of battle. And he said, you know, it's the common assumption is that, you know, the, the thing that separates the men from the boys is that in the heat of the moment you will rise to the occasion. He said, that is complete garbage. In the heat of the moment, you never rise to the occasion. You simply default to your training. That's why we do what we do. That's why we run drills all the time. 
for us as followers of Jesus, that's why we engage in the spiritual practices. Because in the moment of temptation, you do not suddenly become a person who is able to muster up self-control. Instead, you become a person. If you have been reliant on the life of the Spirit, if you have had your, your mind and your heart shaped by scriptures, you become a person who is able to distinguish the seductive voices from the true ones. We need a new way of training that brings us into the presence of the Father in step with the Spirit. And in that place, to be able to look beneath the surface of our lives and to invite Jesus into that place to examine our longings and the things that are holding sway on our hearts, the things that pull most strongly at us so that they can give way to the things that are most deeply embedded within us. If you're following along kind of in our community guide, our practice for the week uh, is fasting. It's not something new. We've done it before as a community. And, I, you know, I want to be clear, it, it, practices in and of themselves are not ways to curry favor with God. They're simply means to participate with the Spirit in allowing God to shape your life. That's, that's why we do them. They're not things that if you do them, you get, you know, gold stars and cool stickers in, you know, the kingdom. That's not, there's no sticker scheme at work here. They're simply things that we do to partner with the Spirit so that the life of God becomes that much more evident in us. And so it doesn't have to be food. It can be media, Facebook, Netflix, whatever thing that it is that is pulling at you, driving your heart, giving you anxiety, putting the things into, the, the, the injecting those thoughts into your mind, into your heart. You know, if it means you have to wait another week to start streaming, what if, you know, on Disney Plus, like, you, you can handle it. But the whole experience of fasting is about letting go of something tangible and offering that thing to God. Dallas Willard says that fasting is a way of feasting on God. It's a way of allowing those desires to be kind of burned away so that we are drawn into the presence of the Father. It's a way of allowing the Spirit to kind of Shake us up and, 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 and allow the, the things to sift through that pull on our hearts and that hold sway on us to go for a period of time without those things that bring us comfort so that we can live out of a different center altogether. That's what we see Jesus doing in the wilderness. It's only this life that is soaked in regular rhythms of intimacy with the Father, that is shaped by the narratives of Scripture that can resist the enemies of the soul. Because, friends, the heart is good at wanting, but it is blind to all of the ways that what it wants are shaped by the longings that drive it to want. But the heart is made to hunger and thirst for the kingdom, and in that place to find deep rest and find what it is that we have been wanting all along. Ultimately, that is the reason why we gather here each week. That is the reason why we enter into community with each other, 
so that we can see those, those deep longings, those things that are, are strong in our hearts and be in and around another community of people who are also following Jesus, giving their hearts over to the Father to be shaped, to long and desire his kingdom. That is the reason why we gather at the table each week. See, in this bread and in this cup, a taste, a foreshadow of the kingdom of God breaking into this world, this place where we are made to find our home, to draw our hearts toward the one who in his body crucified the flesh so that we can desire rightly. And so, friends, as we come to the table, Let us give our hearts to God. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This cup is the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. So, friends, whenever it is that we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. We proclaim his victory over sin and death. We proclaim that he has made possible a way to crucify the desires of the flesh, the things that pull at our hearts, that trip us up, that keep us from living in the life of flourishing that God desires for us. So friends, as we come, we have been celebrating communion by taking the individual cups and the wafers. If you did not get a chance to grab one, they're there in the narthex. You can, you can do so. But as we come together as a community of faith, let us proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat, drink and remember and rejoice. Amen. stand and sing our last song together. This might be a little bit on the new side. Hang with me and we'll get there. (laughs) 